Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You can find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. Stand for the reading of the word this morning. Scripture reading is found in Romans chapter 12. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Since we have the gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, (coughs) if prophecy, according to the proportion of faith, if service, in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching. Or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to that which is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if the enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him drink, for in so doing you will reap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good.
Let me begin the morning by telling you a story. As Jeff mentioned, our sign out front is demolished and laying on the ground owing to a uh, crazy driver. But in the midst of talking to our neighbor who actually sustained the majority of the damage from the car accident, you know, she's an 88-year-old woman. She's been a good neighbor these 22 and a half years. She has watched out for us in so many ways. So I was standing on Wednesday speaking to her about what had occurred here. And she said, you know, I lived here and watched that house that you're now in. I watched that built. And I said, well, oh, that's interesting. You've never told me that. And so she started talking about the fellow who built the building. And she said, uh, he told me when he moved in, he said, I'm not a very good neighbor. I like to be left alone, and I'll leave you alone. And she was laughing about that. And I said, well, you know, you've referred to it as a, as a house here a couple of times. We have converted it. You know, it's not a, a house anymore. It looks like a house, but it's a church building now. Do you want to come see it? You've never been inside. And she said, oh, yes. So she and her son came in and were looking through the building, just really happy with all the changes we've made. Well, in the course of that conversation, she started talking about the man who built this property, who through the years, through the last 22 years, you've heard me refer to him again and again as the retired general in a wheelchair, because that's all I knew about him. And of course, the advantage of him being a retired general in a wheelchair is that he had the sidewalk all around the outside. We have five doors all the way around the outside. It was built to his specification, but he built a public building. And so I have often said he built a church and then he died because he died before he was able to make his first payment. And yet he had the building built for his specifications. In the midst of talking to her about this man and even showing her the waste of space shower in the back bathroom, which she got a big kick out of, in the midst of that, she started referring to the man, the retired general in the wheelchair, started referring to him by his first name. And it occurred to me in 22 and a half years that I had never heard his first name. I have no idea what his name was. She couldn't remember his last name, but do you know what his first name is? You're going to enjoy this, I guarantee you. Do you know what the man's name was who built this building that we've been meeting in for all these years? You know what his name was? Calvin. <laughs> What are the chances? So once again, God drops this little piece of providence on us 22 and a half years later. We will be rebuilding the, uh, the sign out front. We're even talking about maybe making something that has a little more heft to it than, than our previous sign, something that if it would not stop a car, would at least slow it down significantly before it plowed into our neighbors. What about a marquee? Pardon me? Can we have a marquee? A marquee <laughs> right. with lights and removable yeah. letters <laughs> so that we can respond to the other signs in town? <laughs> you know, for years I used to say, since that Methodist church is a block up, and they used to have all kinds of things on their sign that I found um, rather disagreeable. And so as you're driving down Hazelwood, you would see their sign, and then you would see our building. And for years, I wanted a sign with removable letters just so that we could answer that sign, <laughs> except that it occurred to me that most weeks, as people drove by and saw the Methodist sign, our sign would just say, nah, <laughs> <laughs> that's not right. <laughs> Exactly. First Thessalonians chapter 3, turn there. 
Paul is in Corinth. Paul has sent Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on the congregation and the people there. And then Timothy has returned to Paul and brought a good report of the constancy and of the faithfulness and of the love of the people in Thessalonica. And this has done Paul's heart a great deal of good. As we saw last week, he said that their faithfulness was such a great encouragement to him in the midst of all of the difficulty, all the pain that he was receiving, that he found joy in the midst of all of that. And the rest of chapter 3, which is going to take up the first part of this morning, the rest of chapter 3 is him saying that he thanks God for their faithfulness, which is an interesting theological reality, that he doesn't thank them for remaining Christian or for taking the persecution. He thanks God for the fact that they have endured. Again, Paul's recognition of the absolute sovereignty of God in all things and his recognition that if anybody has faith in Christ and perseveres in that faith, that that can't be a human thing. That has to be a divine thing. That has to be God doing it. And so that will take up the second half of chapter 3. And then hopefully this morning we'll have a little bit of time to look into the first part of chapter 4 because chapter 4 is the beginning of the second portion of this letter. The letter is kind of divided up into two portions. And I actually agree with this particular chapter division because it goes from Paul's greetings and Paul's encouraging them and Paul thanking God for them into Paul responding to them. As you're going to see in chapter 3, he's going to say that he wishes he could have been there with them in order to satisfy, to fill up, to complete what was lacking in their faith so far. Because apparently Timothy comes back to Paul and has questions. He comes back and says, okay, the folks in Thessalonica doing great. Their faith is secure even in the midst of their persecution. But when you were there, you taught them and you were only able to be with them for a short period of time. And so now they have questions. Because one of the things that Paul taught them, apparently, while he was with them, was some eschatological stuff. Christ is returning. And so now they have questions about, well, what about this and what about that? And so Paul is going to start responding and explaining and satisfying, filling their theology and their eschatology. But before he gets to that, he has to address something that apparently Timothy has also brought back with him. The society in Thessalonica, like all Greek societies, like all major Greek cities, was just absolutely permeated with all kinds of temples and all kinds of pagan worship. And much pagan worship, if you read about it historically had a great deal of sexual overtone to it. I'm choosing my words wisely this morning for the kids in the room. Thessalonica was just riddled with all kinds of sexual deviancy. As a consequence, these folks who had been converted to Christianity had grown up in that very sexualized society where things like pagan worship included things like temple prostitutes. There were even pagan religions that believed that adultery was part of their worship. And so the society itself was very anti-Christian in its approach to sexuality. And so the first thing that Paul has to address to them is that as Christians, they need to be different than the rest of the society, and that they need to be, you're going to see Paul use the word several times here, hagiasmas, he's going to say you need to be sanctified, you need to be separated, you need to be different than you used to be, and so he's going to admonish them to avoid pornaya, 
and then the particular kind of pornaya that he's going to really focus on here appears to be adultery. And so first he has to deal with their behavior as newly minted Christian people, and then he'll get to their questions. Next week we'll get to the eschatological questions, but first we have to look at Paul saying he thanks God for them, that he is reassured by their faith and their love, importantly, for one another. And then he's going to address their behavior, or at very least, the temptations that their society provides for them, given that they live in a highly perverse sexual environment. There, did I navigate that okay? Everybody all right with that? Okay. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. That's where we left off last week. For this reason, says verse 5, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, when he had this great longing to be in contact with them, to find out how they were doing. When I could endure that no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith. For fear that the tempter, that would be Satan himself, for fear that the tempter may have tempted you and that our labor should be in vain. So that Paul would have spent that time, gone through the persecutions, taken the difficulties, the beating, the pain, in order to bring the gospel to the Thessalonians, that then they would have heard it, they would have reacted to it, they would have given indication that they had been changed by it, but then Satan would come along. This makes me think of Jesus talking about the four different kinds of soil and the kind of people who have no real deep root to them, where they hear the word with joy initially, And then the cares of this life, the difficulties of this world come along. Satan comes and plucks away that little bit that they did have. And then they wander away from the faith. Paul is concerned that perhaps that's what's happened in Thessalonica. And he wants to make sure that it hasn't. And so he has sent Timothy, his fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to go and find out specifically about their faith. Because Paul was fearful that the tempter might have tempted them. This is why I took so much time to stress at the beginning the kind of society they lived in. They lived in a society that was riddled with temptation. Sound familiar? I mean, pretty much everywhere we look these days, temptation abounds. And Paul recognizes that that kind of temptation can cause people, despite their desire to be godly, despite their desire to follow Christ, sometimes the temptations of this world can be overwhelming. And so he wants to know if their faith is secure or if the tempter has tempted them and then his labor, everything he has invested in them, would all be for naught. It would all be in vain. But, verse 6, now Timothy has come back to us from you. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought good news about your faith and love and that you think kindly toward us, longing to see us the same way that we long to see you, for this reason, brethren, In all our distress and affliction, we're comforted about you through your faith. 
And now we live if you stand firm in the Lord. So that's the opposite of his concern that he would be operating in vain. He says, instead, we have this great livelihood. We are alive. We have succeeded in knowing that your faith is standing firm in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that from Timothy because Timothy came to us and told us the good news, not only about your faith, but notice that right alongside that, Paul mentions your faith and your love. He's going to mention it again, their love for the brethren. And in fact, for all the brethren in Macedonia, their love was well known. Their love was being exercised. It was more than just a feeling. It was something that they were living out in the way that they were caring for each other. And so Paul recognizes that the Christian faith demonstrates itself, grows into love for the saints, love for one another, sacrifice, the same way that Christ sacrificed for you, that you would sacrifice for other people, that you would do good for other people, that you would look out for other people. That is part and parcel of what it is to be genuinely Christian. And so Paul says it, that he came and gave us good news, a good report about your faith and about your love, and that you also Think well of us. Paul was so concerned that if the tempter had tempted them away, if they had left the faith, then of course they would think of Paul as that guy who came and stayed with us for a couple weeks, told us some stuff, and then left us. So who cares? We'll just leave the faith. Instead, they love Paul. They're so grateful for the news that he brought them. And all of that combined, the fact that his work was not in vain, the fact that they love one another and that they think kindly toward him, all of that, he said, revived me. All of that makes me live again. For now we live if you stand firm in the Lord. And it also, notice in verse 7, I just find this so consistently interesting, that Paul says, despite the distress, despite the affliction, he's being successful in spreading the gospel. He's being successful in bringing about converts. He's being successful in his work, and yet the work itself includes all kinds of distress and affliction. And in the distress and the affliction, He doesn't find comfort in the ceasing of the affliction. The affliction is part of the package. He's already said, we're destined to this. This is part of it. This is what it is for me to do what I'm doing. It's going to be painful, and I know that. And I told you that. And now it is, so it shouldn't be a surprise to you. So where does he find his comfort in the midst of all that? In the midst of distress, in the midst of affliction, we're comforted about you through your faith, recognizing that God is saving people, that God is sovereignly converting people and bringing them into the church of his beloved son. That's why Paul is doing what he's doing, and that's what makes the affliction worth it. Verse 9. Now he's going to thank God. Notice again, He doesn't thank them. He doesn't say, I'm comforted in my affliction. Thank you. Thank you for sticking with it. Thank you for giving it that old college try. Well done, you. I'm so proud of you. No, what he says is, for what thanks can we render to God for you? He recognizes that it is the sovereignty of God that brings about people who are faithful, who endure in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact that the church in Thessalonica continues to endure is an act of God, and Paul recognizes it as an activity of God. And so he is thanking God and saying, I can't thank God enough. What thanks can we render to God for you in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God 
on your account. God is front and center in that entire sentence. I thank God. It is God who continues to sustain you. And I thank God for you on your account. But I can't thank him enough. Notice again, he didn't say, I can't thank you enough. So I can't thank God enough for you. That's the kind of joy this report from Timothy brought to Paul. He said, it's like life. It's continuation in the gospel. It it makes the affliction. It makes all of the distress all worth it. And I thank God. How can I thank God enough for the amount of joy that you have brought me? For what thanks can we render to God for you in return for all of the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and that we may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now, he's not saying your faith is a faith of lack. You're lacking faith. You don't have enough faith in Jesus Christ. What he's saying is in understanding Christianity, you still have questions. You still have areas that you're not clear about. And I wish I could have stayed with you. I wish I could have told you all that. I wish I could have answered your questions. But I had to go. I was being driven out. And because I was on the run, I had limited amounts of time with you. Your faith in Jesus Christ, as we've just seen, is so intact, so complete, that Paul is celebrating and thanking God for the fact that their faith and their love continues and abounds. He's going to say that in a minute, that you just abound in love for one another evidence of how great their faith in Christ was. But their Christian faith, in other words, their understanding of the details, the ins and outs of Christianity, that's what was lacking. And Paul said, I wanted to come to you again so that I could fill in the blanks. I wanted to get there and answer your questions. We, night and day, keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and may fill up, may complete what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus, our Lord, direct our way to you. On the face of it, that is just Paul saying, I pray that God in Christ will ultimately lead me back to you because it's necessary that I be in your midst. It's necessary that you get these questions answered. But notice what else Paul did here in verse 11. He just equated Jesus with God the Father. And he didn't even hesitate in the doing it. He didn't even feel it was necessary to explain it. He didn't even go into the ontological trinity. He just simply saw that Jesus Christ and God the Father are on par with each other. He prays to them both, looking for, expecting that he's going to be able to get back to the Thessalonians as Christ himself, our Lord, our Kurios, our absolute master, is in the process of building his church person by person. Paul recognizes that it is God's plan It is Jesus' church, and that they, as the Godhead, are responsible for the growth, for the behavior, for the learning, for the education, and even ultimately for the distress and for the affliction of everything that Christianity is. It all comes from God and Christ. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, And may the Lord cause you to increase and to abound in love for one another. Really interesting. A minute ago, he just said that Timothy brought a good report about your faith and love. But notice that Paul did not say, oh, you've got faith in Christ and you've got love for one another. You're good. 
stand on that. Rest on your laurels. You're doing great. Instead, what he says is that the Lord Jesus who has begun this good work in you, the Lord Jesus who is in the process of building and sanctifying his own church, that he himself would cause you to increase and abound in your love for one another. So you don't ever reach the point in this Christian journey where you can say, okay, I've done it. I'm all paid up. I'm good. I've loved some people for a while. I've taken care of some folks. But now I'm good. I'm just going to sit back. I'm just going to relax for a while. After all, I deserve a break. I've been really out there Christianing it, and I, I need a break. No, instead, Paul says, having complimented their love for each other, that he expects the Lord and prays to the Lord to cause them to increase and to abound, to overflowing in sacrificial love for one another. And for, now the NASB says, and for all men, just as we also do for you. So Paul's standard is, I've loved you. I've loved you sacrificially. I've taken the beatings to prove it. I've taken the stonings. I've taken the shipwrecks. I've taken all of the difficulties, distresses, and afflictions in order to demonstrate my love for you. So now you do that for one another. But then he also says, and for all men. It's the one single Greek word, pas. It's just for all and as we have talked about many times here at GCA, sometimes the word pos in the Greek is used as generally everybody, all. Sometimes it's used in a limited sense, all of a group. In this context, he's talking about all the other saints there in Macedonia who know about the love of the Thessalonians. He's not saying you love everybody, including those ones who are beating me. You, you're so good and so loving and sacrificial to even those people who hate you and are trying to kill you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, and for all the saints, not just those in Thessalonica, in your group, but for all of the saints. You're going to abound in love for one another and for pos, for all, not all men, not all people, Paul just wrote, for all, just as we also do for you. So that, and now Paul can't help himself, he gets all eschatological. Because Paul's constant thinking, as we talked about last week, his constant thinking about Christianity is not just Christ came and paid our sin debt and then went back to heaven. His constant anticipation, the constant reality for him is, and he's coming back. Amen. And this whole Christian thing, this Christian behavior, this entire Christian faith, all of that culminates in the fact that he's coming back. And if you're with him and he's with you when he returns, then that's what makes the whole Christian journey worth it. Now, I have to read the whole sentence starting at verse 11 in order to build up speed to get to the final sentence. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. That's Christianity. As I said last week as we finished, the Christian story is so much bigger than just right here, right now. And it's so much more expansive than just what Christ did while he was here on the planet. It also includes what Christ is going to do when he returns and then what he's going to do throughout all of eternity 
in blessing his people with joy and happiness, no more death, no more pain, no more disease, no more fear. God himself wipes away every tear. That's going to be a mighty good day. But notice how Paul describes it. Do you think the folks in Thessalonica were sinners like you and me? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they were previously pagan before they came to Christianity. Previously enemies of God. So what we know about them for sure is that they were not unblameable and they were not holy and righteous. They were guilty before God. But Paul says they are ultimately going to stand before God with their hearts so purified that they are unblameable in holiness. Unblameable in holiness. Anybody in this room right now want to claim to be unblameable in holiness? That's not something we can do. That's not something that we can establish. But Christ, when he returns, according to Paul's own anticipation of the return of Christ, when Christ returns, he's going to establish. He's going to found. He's going to remake. He's going to restructure our hearts so that we ourselves stand before God unblameable. Now, I I got plenty of blame. You folks generally have lots of reason to blame me. You can think of one right now. In fact, you probably are. I'm blamable because I'm human and because I'm me and I'm a little bald, scar-bellied preacher just trying to do the best he can. And yet, despite everything I know about me, despite everything I've been, everywhere I have been, all the things I have done, I'm going to stand before the absolutely holy, righteous maker of heaven and earth, the only intensely pure one. I'm going to stand before him and be Unblameable? Wow, that feels good. Unblameable. How's that going to happen? Because he is going to establish. It's not going to be us. We're not going to do it. He will establish your heart unblameable in righteousness, in holiness. In hagios, in the kind of holiness that God himself demonstrates and ever has been. Mm. That kind of righteousness, that kind of holiness is how we're going to stand in his presence. That's just impossibly difficult for me to conceive of because I know me and I know some of you. And if you know you, you know you're not blameless. And we're going to stand before God the judge of the universe, and he's not going to be able to find anything to blame us for. Yeah, that's right. Several people shook their head like, wow, wow, wow. This is why Paul, in his larger theology, can say things like, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? He says then, it is God who justifies us. So if God is justifying us, he's not going to lay anything to our charge. He's busy making us righteous. So he's not going to charge us. And then he says Christ isn't going to charge us because he's the one that died for us and that rose again and is sitting at the right hand of God. So he's not going to charge us. He's the one who died in order to redeem us. So he's not going to charge us. God's not going to charge us. Who's going to lay anything to our charge. Now, are there plenty of reasons to charge us? <coughs> sure, yes. And that's the astounding, marvelous reality of grace. That's why all these years we're still saying it's grace. Grace, 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 grace. Because it can't be you, and it can't be your ability, and it can't be your law keeping, and it can't be your fleshly efforts. It can't be your heritage. It can't be your background. It can't be your wisdom, your cleverness. It can't be anything in you. 
It has to be God, which is why Paul is so specific in his language here. Notice that he does not say, so that you will establish your hearts unblameable in holiness. He says, so that Christ, when he returns, our Lord and our Savior, when he returns, he will establish your heart unblameable in holiness before God, our Father. Our God and Father, the maker of heaven and earth, the righteous, ever holy judge of the universe. When we stand before him, we're going to be unblameable because we're standing with Christ. We're with him. He's with us. No blame. You see the importance of this whole Christian thing? Because if you don't have him, then you stand before that same God who is righteous and holy and an eternal judge. And you're going to stand before him and he's going to judge you on the basis of everything you are and everything you've done and how many ways you are an enemy of his. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for us, for all, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before our God and Father at the parousia, the arrival, Christ being alongside us at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. I want to be in that number. I want to be in that. Let's sing, oh, when the saints go marching in. Come on. That's that's the group I want to be in. Oh, good. He's doing it. Good. Somebody joined me. The rest of you stared at me like there was something wrong with me. I'm glad somebody joined me. What good news. Just what Good news. I really want to move on to chapter 4, but then in chapter 4, Paul is going to give them instruction, and I don't want to kind of lose this moment of astounding grace. Unblameable. I'm just going to keep saying that. All right, chapter 4. Fine, we'll move on. Chapter 4, verse 1 starts with the word finally, even though there's still two more chapters to come. Paul isn't quite wrapping up his letter. But I think he's saying, okay, now having said all that, I, I now need to address some things among you. And as I said, he's going to talk about pornia in their society and what a temptation that it is. We don't know if Timothy came back and said, now, even though their faith is in Jesus Christ and even though they love one another, some of their activity is still the way the whole society is. Some of their pagan activity, especially sexually, hasn't been changed. Maybe that's what Timothy said. Or maybe Timothy just simply said, you know, the society itself is an awfully big temptation and you just need to address this with them. Because Paul writes, finally then, brethren, we request, so we're asking you, we're addressing you in this, and we exhort you. We're going to instruct you. We're going to direct you. And we exhort you in the Lord Jesus. So this isn't just me. This is Jesus saying this. We exhort you in the Lord Jesus that As you received from us instruction as how you ought to walk to please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. The same way that he said, your love and your faith, you need to continue to grow in that. You need to continue to abound in your love for one another. You can't stand still. You can't rest on what you've already done. He then says, the same way that your faith and your love needs to grow and increase, your behavior as a Christian also needs to grow, also needs to increase. 
You've received instruction from us about what it looks like to walk and to please God. And then he says, and you do. According to Timothy, you do. You walk according to the instruction that we left you. But you need to abound in it. You need to excel still more. You need to be more different. You need to continue to be examples in your society of what it is to be Christian and what it is to be different than the temptations of your society. You need to excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of our Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. Your hagiosmos is the Greek word. The reason I point that out is a minute ago when we were talking about holiness, the word holy is hagios. Hagiosmos is sanctification, but what it really, if we were to literally translate it, what it really means is in your holy activity of life. Your sanctification, your hagiosmos, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, that's really, really interesting that when Paul starts addressing their sanctification and says, it is the will of God, it's the determination of God that you be separate, that you be different than unbelievers, that you be different than the pagans. That's the purpose and the will of God for you. But then he just makes a beeline right to pornia. So clearly there was something going on in the church. Clearly there was something that needed to be addressed. We don't know what it is. I'm not saying that I know what it was. But there was something so pressing that after Paul took what we call three chapters in order to compliment them and tell them how well they were doing, right behind that he addresses God is after your sanctification. God is determined. It is his will to make you different than those around you. And then he says, and that sanctification, that hagiosmos, he defines it. That is that you abstain from pornia. Now that word pornia in the Greek has a very wide birth, a very wide definition. It means everything other than one man, one woman, sexual relation within marriage. Everything outside of that, whatever you want to name, it falls under the category of pornia. But in a minute, Paul is going to identify the particular pornia he's talking about as a transgress that also defrauds brethren. Okay, so that narrows it down. The language that Paul is going to use makes it more obvious that what he's particularly talking about is adultery. Because apparently there was something going on in the church. There was something certainly going on in the society around them that was leading to this practice of adultery, which, as I said earlier, was even part of some pagan religious worship practices. So Paul is saying, you're to be different. You're Christian people. Part of your sanctification is that you abstain from Pornia, translated in the NASB as sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Your own vessel there is your own body. That each of you learn individually how to possess your own body in sanctification, in separateness, and in honor. Honoring God, honoring your faith, honoring what Christ has done for you. So that is all falling under the category of what Paul is calling your hagiosmos. You're becoming separated to God and separated from the world. And then verse 5 says, as opposed to sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Okay, big help there. He's saying your society is a pagan society full of people who don't know God, 
who are giving in at every turn to the natural, fleshly, lustful desires. Look, let's just admit that the sexual urge is a, it's a strong one. It's a tough one to argue with. It's a tough one to fight against. And so if you have a society of people who are worshiping pagan gods and then part of their worship includes sexuality, you can see how quickly that society is going to degrade into every form of pornaya. I'll say it again. It's just hard to ignore. Um, that kind of describes America right now. Yeah. I mean, how much of the sexuality that's going on in America right now is one man, one woman in a marriage covenant? Everything outside of that is pornaya, and we're seeing it rampant right now. It's everywhere, and it's all as perverse well, I was going to say as perverse as it can be, but, you know, I wake up some days and think, okay, it's really bad. How can it get any worse? And then it gets worse. And so I expect it to just keep getting worse as people become more and more and more degraded. Okay, well, then any of us who are Christian people are able to look at that kind of perversion and say, okay, that's a perversion of what God intended sex to be. Sex is a good thing. Sex is a great thing. Can I get a witness? Sex, no, sex, fine. God has a purpose for sex. He has a place for sex. And he has confines for sex. One man, one woman. No adultery. Don't defraud each other. You know, God is so serious about this that it comes up twice in the Ten Commandments. You've only got Ten Commandments to work with and one of them is, don't commit adultery. That's one whole commandment just by itself. Don't commit adultery. And then later, under the heading of lusting for things, desiring things, coveting things that you don't have, he says, don't covet your neighbor's wife. And then says, or his manservant, or his maidservant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Okay, he could have just said, don't covet things that belong to your neighbor. But he took the time to put wife right up there because that desire to have somebody else's wife, that desire to commit adultery, comes up twice in the Big Ten. Because, here's a basic premise, I've said this so many times, and yet I'm going to say it again, because I am redundant. The commands exist in order to instruct you about the stuff you naturally do. You have these built-in proclivities to do things like steal. You know you've all been tempted at least once to take something from work. The reason that there are commands like don't commit adultery and don't covet your neighbor's wife is because we're gonna. And so the law has to say, don't. And so here Paul is doing the same thing in dealing with the folks in Thessalonica. He's having to say, don't do it. I know you desire it. I get that you want it, and I get that it's in your society. I get that it's pervasive. I get that it's everywhere. But you're different. And so don't give in to the pornaya that is all around you. Don't give in to the lustful passions that are indicative of the Gentiles who do not know God. That's why they're the way they are. They don't know God, but you do know God. You're to be different. You're to be sanctified. And then verse 6 makes it more obvious that he's really honing in here on adultery and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, in that matter of lustful, fleshly activity. How do you defraud your brother with your lustful passions? Well, adultery. That's how you do it. There is a phrase, um, George, I'm going to ask you a question. What does this legal phrase mean? Alienation of affection. It means to indulge in a course of trying to steal 
in today's world, it could be a spouse, not just a man's wife, but a, 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 a wife's husband. Yeah, it's trying to gain somebody's affection yeah. when that affection belongs to somebody else. Take them away from who they belong to. Take them away from who they belong to. Look, it's written in our law. It's in our jurisprudence that you're not supposed to do that because their affection belongs to the person they are married to or their spouse. And so Paul then says, if you do that, not only is that sinful and a transgression against God, but you are defrauding your brother because you're coveting his wife, alienating her affections away from him where they belong and trying to gain them for yourself. So don't defraud your brother in the matter. Why? Because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. And so the warning is clear. Do not pursue these things that are sexually illicit. Even if you see the society doing it, it's because the society is not God-fearing. But if you know God and are being sanctified, are being changed, are being directed by the Spirit of God, which, by the way, is referred to as the Holy Spirit. That's a clue. The Hagion Numa. There's that word Hagios right there in the name of the Spirit of God. So that Holy Spirit of God is within you, separating you from this world, making you different, so that then your behavior, the way you walk, is pleasing to God. And one of the ways that you would displease God is to chase after every lustful passion the way that the Gentiles who don't know God would do, and that you would transgress God, defraud your own brother. But remember that the Lord himself is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. It's a pretty solemn warning. Don't be like that. Why? Because God will get you. There, I made it easy. Because God recognizes the value of one man, one woman, family relation. And he said, if you mess with that, I will judge you for it. Now, if you're a believer in Christ, he's not going to lose you. He's going to correct you. And for any of you who have ever been corrected by God, you can testify that it's no fun. Uh, I've been there, done that, got the T-shirt. Trust me on this one. Don't do it. But among the Gentiles who are chasing every lust of their flesh, God is going to avenge himself. He's going to avenge his own holiness, his own righteousness, and he's going to judge this world for their behavior, for their unbelief, and for the fact that they were utterly fleshly in their desires, which leads to all kinds of what Paul calls concupiscence, all kinds of lustful behavior. Why? Okay, so Paul has said all of this. Paul has instructed them. Paul has warned them. Paul has told them to abstain from pornia. Why? Because, verse 7, because God has called us not for the purpose of impurity, but for sanctification. Wouldn't that be obvious? A holy God who gives us his Holy Spirit is calling us to be holy. It's obvious. That's what the sanctification process is all about, separating us from this world and to God. And if you're saying that you believe in Christ and at the same time engaging in all kinds of pornia, sexual immorality, that's not what God called you to. That's not his purpose. He just told you a minute ago, this is the will of God, your sanctification. That's the will of God. Clearly, God did not call you for purposes of impurity, he called you for sanctification. Consequently, he who rejects this teaching, he who rejects this instruction, is not rejecting man. Paul doesn't take it personally. He said, I didn't just make this up. 
Like I said a few minutes ago, it's twice in the Ten Commandments. It's clear that this is the way that God expects us to be. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but he's rejecting the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So if God gives you his Holy Spirit, it's because he expects you to be changed by his Holy Spirit, to be sanctified, to be different, to set your affections, to set your mind on things above instead of things below, to set your affections and your desires on the things of God and not on the things of the flesh. And we live right now, right here, in a world that is absolutely riddled with pornaya. It's just absolutely everywhere. And it's a tremendous temptation. You can be on your computer looking up the most boring thing you can possibly think of. I'm looking for a recipe for beets. I can't think of anything more boring than that. Okay. Yeah, that's the face you make, too. And then something will pop up where you're like, where did that come from? What is that? Wait, hold on, what is this? And I'm seeing more and more of it just on social media that pops up. When you're not even looking for it, you're just scrolling through your wall and there'll be something that's like, I'm sorry, God, I didn't mean to see that. I wasn't looking for that, and there it is. We're in a society, in a world right now, where the pernaya is just everywhere. But remember God's standard. And remember your call. Your call is to sanctification. Your call is to be different. Your call is to righteousness because he has given you his Holy Spirit. And that is something that is true of us right here now today. And it was true 2,000 years ago of the people in Thessalonica. And it was true of the Israelites when they were standing at the foot of Mount Sinai when they came out of Egypt and God had to give them commands and instruction not to be that way. So this has always pervasively been a problem for this world. You're not unique. You're not distinct in fighting these things. And yet we are told to fight them. I am really glad to know because if you're anything like me, and I hope to God you're not, if you're anything like me, you fight these things and sometimes you fail. I'm just really glad to know that when Christ comes back, at his appearing, at his parousia, when he's right alongside us, then he is going to remake our heart. That he is going to establish us in unblameable holiness. That's why I look to him. That's why I pray to him. That's why I expect and anticipate and love his return it's because one day I'm finally going to be the man I mean to be every day. Yes. We appreciate you listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.